I thank you very much, Rick. Nice introduction. My name is Jim and I'm an alcoholic. According to our traditions, I'm supposed to tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And I will try to cover uh, at least some of those parts of my life. Can't tell you all about all of it, because there just isn't time. And you might take bets that the old geezer will also talk about the good old days to some extent on an occasion like this. I'll try not to disappoint you there either. I never know how much time I should spend talking about my drinking days. I don't like long drunkalogs, and I know a lot of other people don't, but I don't want to gloss over it and minimize it either. And uh, as a newcomer in the program, I listened very carefully to that part of a guy's talk. We called them leads in those days. You led the meeting, so that was your lead. Your talk was your lead. You used to say, you ought to hear so-and-so, he's a good lead. And I would listen to the leads in order to compare my drinking with their drinking. And I think the reason I was doing that was because I had in the back of my mind a little reservation of some kind. Maybe I'm not really an alcoholic. And that's why I was comparing. Was I really that bad? You know, I, I, I was going to meetings and I told people I was an AA. And I said, I got up and said I'm an alcoholic, but still, maybe it was wishful thinking, but there was that little bug in the back of my mind. Maybe not. Maybe this is all a mistake. I heard some pretty hairy stories when I came into the program. Guys that had tough leads, guys that had gone to prison, guys that had killed people with their automobile, guys that had killed people in other ways, guys that had lived under the high-level bridge in Cleveland, Ohio, all winter, wearing a World War I overcoat and tennis shoes. Some of them froze to death there in the Lake Erie winters. There were tough stories. There were guys that talked about draining radiators and straining it through bread to get the rust out and drinking the antifreeze. It'll kill you, but it was a drink. There were guys that talked about pouring alcohol off of sterno or canned heat and drinking denatured alcohol. It'll blind you, but it was a drink. There were guys that drank aftershave lotion. Bay Rum seemed to be the favorite brand. Uh, they drank Geritol, had a call, anything that ended in OL, because it all had an alcohol base. Uh, I heard a woman talk one night. She'd been drinking lemon extract right out of the bottle because it had an alcohol base. I couldn't imagine that, but that was her favorite drink. When she got sober, her husband found dozens of lemon extract bottles stashed away behind the refrigerator. There were guys that smoked nutmeg and corn cob pipes. They got some kind of boot out of that. I never understood that, but they did. They talked about it. And I sat there thinking, I'm not that bad. Maybe I'm not an alcoholic. And then I heard a woman one night stand up. She said she was an alcoholic. and She drank two six-packs of beer a week. Twelve bottles of beer a week. You know what I said to that. I spilled more than that. You know, I just, I said that. How could she say she's an alcoholic when that's all she drank? Well, I realized eventually, I kept going to meetings and I kept listening, which is what they told me to do, and I would learn some things, and I sure did. I learned for one thing that uh, everybody has their own definition of what an alcoholic is, and I have my own definition. 
my definition changed over the years. It was always somebody that drank more than I did. And it had come to the point where an alcoholic was a skid row bum. And I wasn't a skid row bum, therefore I wasn't an alcoholic. That was my logic. <coughs> to a prohibitionist, to a total dry, anybody who drinks any alcohol at all is an alcoholic. Then there are some who set the bar a little higher. I heard a man talk about being in the hospital for a week or ten days, and he couldn't get a drink, and he was dying for one. And he kept eyeing a glass of alcohol on a side table near his bed, in which the nurse kept a rectal thermometer. <laughs> he dropped it at that point and never finished that story. At the end of that meeting, they had a, a comment session, and an old-timer in the front row raised his hand and said, Hey, you never finished the story about the alcohol and the thermometer. Did you drink it? The guy said, I was really tempted, but no, I never actually drank it. And the old-timer said, Hell, you ain't no alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> you see, there was a man that set the bar a little higher. <laughs> the threshold for becoming an alcoholic was much higher than I had put it even. I was comparing the wrong thing. I was comparing apples and oranges. I didn't drink like a lot of other people. I didn't drink as much as some. I drank a lot more than others. I drank different things. I drank it over a longer period of time than some, a shorter period of time than some. We were all different drinkers. So what did we have in common? Trouble. We all had trouble, lots of trouble. We all had the same trouble. The lady with the 12 beers a week and the Skid Row Bum and me. We had trouble with our family, trouble with our job, trouble with our career, trouble with the cops, trouble getting money to buy booze, trouble hiding booze, trouble covering it up, trouble with our friends, trouble with our conscience, nothing but trouble. When I came in the program, they taught me to walk down the street and say, drink when the left foot hit the pavement and trouble when the right foot hit the pavement. I was to walk along and say, drink, trouble, drink, trouble, drink, trouble. The two went hand in hand. I thought that I drank because my wife nagged me. I thought I drank because I wasn't getting along in the job. I thought I drank because my mother-in-law was a witch. None of those things were true. Well, they were all true, but they were not. <laughs> they were not the cause of my drinking. They were the result of my drinking. I know that because they all went away when I stopped drinking. My wife was a nag because I was a drunk. I wasn't getting along in the job because I was a drunk. Even my mother shaped up pretty good. My mother-in-law shaped up pretty good after I got sober. I could never figure that out. Not completely, but that's for the most part. She had a lot of improvement. And it was because of the trouble. We all had the same trouble. I did not come to AA to quit drinking. I came to AA to get out of trouble, and so did all of those other people. It turns out that the cause of my trouble was the drinking, but I came here and I didn't see the light, I felt the heat, and so I came to AA. And I still haven't told you how I drank, and there may be somebody out here tonight wondering if they're an alcoholic or not, or if they have that little seed of doubt in the back of their mind, that wishful thinking. I had a, a man in the program who was very close to me, he touched me, my life, 
in Howard Benhoff, he used to call that kind of thinking a handful of dirt that you carry with you as you climb out of the gutter. That kind of thinking, that's what he called it. And that was what I had. In case you had that, I'll borrow a page from that noted Georgian philosopher and uh, student of human nature, Jeff Foxworthy. <laughs> and tell you that if you have ever awakened at nine o'clock in the morning with a black eye and have no idea how it got there, you may be an alcoholic. <laughs> if you have ever awakened at nine o'clock in the evening, lying flat on your back on a snow-covered sidewalk outside your own front door and have no idea how you got there, you may be an alcoholic. If you have ever fallen on the toilet in the men's room of your favorite bar and broken your ribs, you may be an alcoholic. If you have ever locked yourself in a pay toilet in a theater in a, uh, the afternoon performance so that you can get at the two pints of whiskey you smuggled to work that day in your overcoat pockets without anybody seeing you, you may be an alcoholic. If you have ever torn the knee out of a good pair of pants, a brand new blue suit that you bought especially to make a good impression at this special occasion, you may be an alcoholic. If you've smashed up nine cars in ten years or ten cars in nine years and can't remember which, <laughs> you may be an alcoholic. If you have ever thrown up in your wife's new white fur hat, you may be an alcoholic. And I'll tell you, it took me a long time to make amends for that one. If you have ever hit on a good-looking blonde, very friendly, in a bar, only to discover on closer inspection that she's your cousin, you may be an alcoholic. Actually, she wasn't my cousin. She was my cousin's wife, but it was still pretty embarrassing. If you have ever had six martinis and a bag of beer nuts for lunch, you may be an alcoholic. I've done all of those things. That's how I know I'm an alcoholic. And this all ended up with a lot of trouble. Trouble on the job. I was laid off. My wife was ready to leave me. And I was saturated with booze. I couldn't even get really drunk anymore. I couldn't get enough to get the feeling I was looking for. And obviously I couldn't get sober either. I got laid off from my job. They told me not to come back until I could come back sober and give them some indication that I could stay that way. I had no place to go and I was laying in bed at home, sick, tired, worried, scared, terrible condition. And a man showed up at my bedside named Ellis. He was a lawyer. I didn't know how he got there. I found out later that he was the friend of one of the engineers at the TV station where I worked. They went to church together and the engineer had asked him if he would call on me and see if he could help. He had called my wife and she invited him over. It's a good thing he didn't talk to me because I wouldn't have invited him over. I had already hung up on another guy that called me earlier that day, a man that I knew. I didn't know he was an AA, but he identified himself as an AA and wanted to know if he could help and I said I don't need your AA and I hung up on him. But Ella showed up at my bedside and I couldn't escape and he talked to me and I had no idea what he said but somehow he talked me into going to a hospital with him. I went to St. Vincent Charity Hospital in downtown Cleveland 
and he checked me into a place called Rosary Hall. Rosary Hall was the second AA ward in the world. It was founded by Sister Mary Ignatia of St. Augustine. She founded Serenity Hall at St. Thomas Hospital in Akron. She was around AA with Dr. Bob, working with Dr. Bob and Bill from the very first day of this program, and yet never claimed any part of it. And she was a, a living saint. And she founded those two wards. When I walked in there, I was not a Catholic, and I saw Sister Ignatia and others in the black habit, and they had Jesus nailed to the wall, and there was a chapel in a hospital ward. Have you ever heard of such a thing? A chapel, a place of worship in a hospital ward? I never had. I thought, oh my God, I've checked into some kind of a bunch of religious nuts here. These people, suddenly flashing through my mind was my grandmother who was a Baptist and always claimed that the Catholic church basements were full of arms and ammunition they were going to take over the country. And, and I thought, my God, my grandmother's right. I've been kidnapped. This is the beginning of the rebellion. They're going to brainwash me and I'm going to be the Pope's slave. And I, was, I was ready to go home. But they wouldn't give me my clothes. And you can't get very far out of St. Vincent Charity Hospital in pink striped pajamas with RH stamped on them and no shoes. You also cannot make a phone call out of Rosary Hall. I tried. I tried to call the cops. I really thought I'd been kidnapped. And uh, later on I thought that this was some kind of a scam that these Catholic nuns were working to bilk us out of our life savings. My life savings being several empty whiskey bottles in the trunk of a beat up Chevy. But I tried to believe it or not, I tried to call the Better Business Bureau to report the crooked nuns. <coughs> I didn't want to be there, so I pretended I wasn't. Uh, I thought it was on a boat for a while. I kept asking people how long they'd been aboard, which way's the galley. I don't know where I got the nautical talk. I'd never been on a boat in my life. I take it back. I was on the Aquarama once. I toured the Great Lakes, but I was drunk the whole time I was on that. So I don't remember any nautical talk. I remember my last drink, and I think it was on September 4th, 1960. I say, I think it was September 4th. I'm not sure. It was around midnight, and it could have been the 3rd, or it could have been the 5th. I know it was over the Labor Day weekend, and I've always taken September 4th as my date. I remember the drink. I may not remember the date exactly, but I remember the drink. It, the bartender was a tough old nurse, and the drink came in a paper cup, and it was old Bardwell, which was cheaper booze than I was used to. I drank Corby's and thought it was the cheapest you could buy, but old Bardwell was even cheaper and worse than that. And they put something, a drug in it called peraldehyde, which was supposed to ward off the DTs. The drink worked. I even remembered the toast. The nurse handed me that and said, this is your last one, buddy. That's all you get. They taper you off. The Rosary Hall was not a treatment facility. It was a detox facility. And the whole course was only six days. It kept me a seventh day, but normally it was six. The booze worked, but the peraldehyde didn't. And 24 hours later, I went into DTs. I was in no danger, but there was a show going on across the street in a parking lot. And it was sort of like the West Side Story. They were singing. I remember some of the songs that they did, but they were also killing each other with knives and guns and chains. 
and real blood flowing in the street. And I've had some experience doing play-by-play sports along the way. So I did a running blow-by-blow description for the rest of the guys in the ward who didn't, couldn't seem to get interested in it for some reason. Except for one guy from Youngstown who told me later he knew I was in DTs, but it sounded so good he got up and looked anyway. <laughs> well, maybe he's really got something out there. Yeah? I remember the day after that, too, the nurse kidded me about the show out the window. And I said to her, you mean that wasn't really there? And she said, what do you think, Jim? And turned around, walked out of the room, and left me there. I had now been 24 hours without a drink or more. My thinking was beginning to clear up a little bit. And she asked me what I thought. Nobody had asked me that for a long time. Everybody told me what they thought. My wife had been telling me in no uncertain terms what she thought of me. And the boss did, too, and my mother-in-law. Everybody told me what they thought, but nobody asked me what I thought. And that day I thought about what kind of a man I had become. What kind of a father, what kind of a husband, what kind of a worker. And I didn't like it. I I admitted that day who and what I was. Jim Doney was a drunk. I was the station lush. That's what they called me, and that's what I was. And I knew it that day. And as I walked out of Rosary Hall, there was a sign over the door that said, Take hope, all you who leave here. And I remember thinking to myself, that's all I have is a little bit of hope. I hope these people know what they're talking about. And it turned out they did. I started to go to meetings. I started to learn a lot about myself. I started to learn a lot about other people. I uh, had trouble understanding my sponsor. Ellis was a lawyer, and, and I don't know why I couldn't understand him. I had trouble understanding things I was reading, too. My mind was still in a fog. But I met a guy at my, the home group. The home group was called Independence Group. Uh, that's a good name for an AA group, but it was named after the town it was in. Independence is a town partway toward Akron from Cleveland. And so there were a lot of old-timers around that area, of course. And that's where I was going. And um, lost my train of thought there for a moment. I want to change sponsor. I, I had decided I couldn't understand Ellis, and I had met another guy, a fellow named Ken, and I wanted him to be my sponsor, but I didn't know if you were allowed to do that, or if you could, how to go about it, because I didn't want to hurt Ellis's feelings. So the guy who was the semi-permanent chairman of that group was a fellow named Howard Benhoff. And he would not mind my telling you his full name. He wasn't a very anonymous guy. He, at that time, had over 20 years of sobriety, which dated him back to before 1940. He was one of the earliest guys in AA. I was told that he was on the committee that submitted the first draft of the traditions of AA, that he helped write the traditions of our program. And he was a wise man, and he touched my life in many ways. But I, So I went to him for advice what to do about the sponsorship thing. And uh, I, I told him what I wanted to do, and I said, I don't want to hurt Ellis's feelings. And Howard looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, hurt his feelings? He may be glad to get rid of you. <laughs> My first lesson in humility came from Howard Benhoff. He said, have you asked Ken if he wants to sponsor you? And I said, no, I hadn't. And he said, well, don't assume anything. You better ask him first. And if he wants to take you on, then go tell Ellis the truth. That's what we do in AA, Jim. He said, we tell the truth. 
We tell each other the truth. We tell ourselves the truth. Don't tell him you don't understand him. That might hurt his feelings. But just tell him you've met somebody you hit it off with and you'd like him to be your sponsor. And I'm sure he'll understand. And he was absolutely right. I asked him. He said, yeah, he'd like to be my sponsor. I went to Ellis and told him. And believe it or not, Ellis was glad to get rid of me. <laughs> not because he didn't like me. But he said, Jim, I've been feeling guilty that I couldn't spend more time with you. He said, I'm trying to reestablish my law career. He hadn't been sober all that long himself. And he said, I was feeling guilty because I couldn't go to as many meetings as I wanted to or spend as much time with you. I'm glad you found somebody to hit it off with. So that worked out well. And Ellis said, you know, if you ever need anything, just give me a call. He'd already done a lot for me. He had touched my life a lot. And so did Ken from then on. I learned a lot from Ken. He was a great sponsor. I learned a lot of things about AA, about the people in AA. I learned a lot of things I maybe shouldn't have learned, as a matter of fact. I learned more places to hide booze in AA than I ever thought of on my own. <laughs> we had a guy in Cleveland who had rerouted the hose on his windshield washer. He came through the firewall into the, the passenger cabin and he kept the bottle full of vodka. When he wanted a drink, he held a glass under the dash and hit the windshield washer and poured him a drink. My own sponsor hid his booze in the furnace. There was a little service door, and he kept it in there. It was on slow simmer all the time, which wasn't too good, and his wife found it there. So he then started hiding it in a mailbox nearby his house. The people that we had rural mailboxes out in the street, and the people went to Florida for the winter, so he kept his booze in their mailbox. You couldn't see it from his house, and he would stop in the morning and on the way home at night. And that's where he kept his extra. When they came home from Florida and started to get their mail, he had to find another place. So Ken bought 25 feet of new garden hose and capped it at both ends and filled it with vodka and coiled it up and hung it in the garage with the garden tools. <laughs> and he spent a lot of time that summer working on the garden. <laughs> Which pleased his wife, except that she couldn't figure out why the grass and Ken were both getting higher and higher. <laughs> and of course there's the toilet tank. I never thought of that. A lot of guys hit it in the toilet tank. Nobody ever looks in there, especially women. Nowadays, it's considered ecologically sound. You put a fifth with water in it in there, and every five times you flush the toilet, you save a gallon of water. You can be drunk and green at the same time. <laughs> I like my home group. I like Howard, especially. He was a great humility builder. He taught me many things. I remember one night I was going to talk at a meeting down in Akron and Howard was with me in the car and we ran into a blizzard and we were running late and the streets were icy and I was getting pretty upset, very antsy. And I suddenly felt Howard's hand on my arm and he said, Jim, what are you so upset about? And I said, Howard, I'm the speaker. We're late. The roads are bad. He said, do you think you're the only one at that meeting that knows how to speak English? Do you think you're the only one at that meeting that has a story to tell? Don't you think they know that it's snowing and that you might be late or missing? Don't you think that about now 
they're getting together to decide which one of them is going to talk instead of you. You are not indispensable. And if you slow down, you may get us there alive in time to have a cup of coffee with these people. <laughs> and I just felt it, you know, just fading away from me. He was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. And I felt calm and at home with him. Started to feel calm and at home with a lot of people. Howard staged an old-timers night the first year I was in the program. I don't remember how many guys were on the stage, six or eight, maybe ten, I'm not sure. They all had 20 years or more of sobriety. They were all his friends. I didn't believe any of them. I thought they were all lying, hedging. I couldn't believe anybody could stay sober for 20 years. But each of them, they didn't have time to tell their whole story, so each of them got up and told a story. And some of them were about drinking, but a lot of them weren't. They were, they were like fairy tales or old wives' tales or something. I couldn't understand what some of them were all about, why they were telling them. What, what did they have to do with me? What did they have to do with drinking? What did they have to do with sobriety? I, I couldn't figure it out. But three of them, this, those stories I remembered very well, because within a very short period of time, I got the point, and it meant a lot to me. And I remember those stories, and I'd like to share them with you tonight. I've never done this before. I've never tried to retell these stories. But I want you to hear them just in case there's somebody here that they might have the same effect on that they've had on me. I won't tell them nearly as well as the originals, but I'll try. The first story was about a guy. This was a real part of his story. He had been sentenced to a place called the Warrensville Work Farm, which is out of, way out east of Cleveland. You know where it is, right? Warrensville Work Farm was a real farm. And the people that were sentenced there worked. They got paid pennies for what they did, uh, their chores and so forth, to buy candy and cigarettes and stuff. They all had jobs to do. It was a low security prison with not a lot of guards. They were mostly trustees. And this guy was, had been put in charge of the pig side. And he raised pigs. He was the only guy that worked in that area. So nobody knew how many pigs he had. They were, litters kept coming, you know. And he had worked out a, a little system he was smuggling pigs out through a hole under the fence and selling them to the local farmers for a few bucks apiece, which was good for the farmer, and he was stashing the money away for a purpose. He had also bribed one of those farmers to get him some civilian clothes, and he had stashed the civilian clothes. He was planning an escape, and it wasn't just an escape. It was an escape to spend Christmas out of jail. He had been a religious man in his life. Christmas was a very important holiday to him. He remembered the good times, the warmth, the fellowship, the peace on earth associated with Christmas, and he just didn't want to spend Christmas in jail. And so he saved that money, and he stashed those clothes away, and the day before Christmas, he made his escape. He got out through the same hole that he smuggled the pigs through, changed his clothes in the woods, hitchhiked down the road till he came to a neon sign, and he asked the driver to let him out there. And I'll bet you can guess what the neon sign said. It had been a long time since he'd had a cold beer. So he went in and had one, and it tasted so good he had another. And then a guy came in for a Christmas cheer and bought a drink in the house, so now he had three. And he had to be polite and buy a drink back, so now he'd had four. Then the house bought a drink, now he'd had five, and somebody bought him a shot. Now he'd had six beers and a shot, and he bought another round. 
Now it was seven beers and two shots. And the next thing you know, he was drunk and broke. And it was five or six o'clock in the evening, and the bartender was calling the last call. He was going to go home and spend Christmas Eve with his family. And he suggested that would be a good place for everybody to go. And they closed up. They threw everybody out. They all got in their cars and went home and left him standing in an empty parking lot, drunk and broke. Not enough money for a decent supper, let alone a hotel room. And it suddenly occurred to him that he had no place to go. He didn't have a family anymore. He didn't have a home. He didn't have a friend. There wasn't a door in that city where he would be welcome. And he hitchhiked back to the jail, snuck in under the fence and went to bed in his cot in the pigsty. It's a sad story. He gave it a happy ending. He said they started an AA group there a few months later and he got in it and he hadn't had a drink since. <laughs> so it had a happy ending and I thought to myself, what does that story have to do with me? Uh, I could not relate to it much. And then one day, within a few days, I heard somebody use the expression, there but for the grace of God go I. I had heard that before and I didn't understand. I didn't know what that meant. But all of a sudden I realized that's what he meant. There but for the grace of God go I. He had drunk it all up and I almost was that far. I had almost drunk it all up. I did not have to go all the way down that road to disaster. I had an opportunity to get off and I thought I better take advantage of that opportunity right now or I'm going to end up in a pigsty or in jail like him. So that story meant a lot to me. The second story was about a kid that worked on a farm. It was a family farm. He uh, did his chores, went to school, got good grades. He was a good kid. One day they put a placard up on the barn. A circus was coming to town. And he studied that billboard for days and said to the family at supper one night he wished he could go to the circus. He'd never seen a circus. And his father realized the kid had very few treats, so he scraped together a dollar. The admission for kids was only a buck. He got a dollar together and he gave it to the boy and told him that he could uh, take off from his chores on Saturday and go into town and see the circus. So the boy got on his best clothes, went into town, and he got into town just as the circus parade was coming down the street. And he looked and there were cages there and he looked in the cages and there were wild animals just like on the billboard and a real live elephant and right behind the elephant the most beautiful team of horses he'd ever seen with ribbons in their mane leather harnesses and they were pulling a bandwagon where there were guys in red uniforms just like he'd seen on the billboard and brass instruments and they were playing music pretty girls in pink outfits hanging off the wagon men in gold leotards waving at the crowd clowns with fuzzy hair and big red noses and big feet running everywhere and one of the clowns came over and tipped his hat to the boy and the boy thought this must be how you pay for the circus and he put his dollar in the clown's hat and the clown put it on and went back to the circus parade down the street and around the corner and out of sight. They were on their way to the big show, to the big top for the show that night. But the boy didn't know about the big top or the big show. He had seen everything he saw on the billboard and he thought that was it. And he turned around and walked home. And he told the family he'd been to the circus and told them what he saw and they all believed him. They thought he'd been to the circus too. But he hadn't been to the circus. He had only seen the parade. What was the point of his story? 
He said he knew people that came to AA that same way. They heard the publicity. They thought they knew what it was all about. They came to meetings. They stayed for a meeting or two or three. They stayed sober for a day, a week, a month, maybe a few months. They worked their way through the steps once, and they thought, well, that's it. I've had it. I'm now an AA. I've graduated. And they stopped coming to meetings, and they drifted away. And they never really got under the big top. They never got in the big show. They never got in it with both feet and both hands and their head and their heart. They'd only seen the parade, and they didn't know the glorious show that there was inside when you got in it all the way. He said, that is the fourth D. He talked about four Ds. The first D was desire, desire to stop drinking. The second D was a decision, decision to do something about it, join AA. The third D was determination, the determination to go a day without a drink, and then a week without a drink, and a month without a drink, and it takes determination. That's why we reward people with the CHIP system, for their determination and sweating it out for that period of time. And then the fourth D is dedication. You dedicate yourself to the program. You dedicate your life to this way of life. And you get in it with both feet and both hands and head and heart. And then you're in the big show. Then is when you really start to enjoy it all, the full glory of the whole circus. One of the reasons this group has grown so much in the seven years that I've been coming here. When I started here, there were maybe 12 or 15 people at a meeting of the depot group. Now there are 45 or 50 every meeting. It has grown because of the dedication of the regular members of this group, the ones that saw me in, that made me welcome, that served me so well, that touched my life. When I moved to this community, <coughs> I moved to this community without a friend in sight that didn't know anybody and suddenly I had a family I was invited to ball games and to homes for dinner and, and people just couldn't do enough for me they have all touched my heart a great deal and that's one of the reasons I regret that I will be leaving this area but I, I'll be back the independence group are dedicated and not at the cost of any other phase of their life. That dedication doesn't mean you have to sacrifice family or career or religion or anything else. All those other facets of your life are improved too. They go along with the dedication to the program. The third story was about a shoemaker, a cobbler, worked in a town. People didn't get shoes repaired anymore. They bought new ones, threw the old ones away. So he made his living repairing gold bags and dyeing shoes to match ladies' dresses. He got a living as best he could. He was a good man, lived all his life, supported his family, went to church regularly, never did a bad thing in his life. Lived a long time, finally died and went to heaven, and stood facing God on Judgment Day. God congratulated him on his exemplary life and said, Is there anything, John, that you noticed along the way that you would rather have seen done some other way? And John said, yes. He said, uh, as a matter of fact, there is. I've always been a true believer. I've always had faith. But there were times when it would have helped if I could have had a word from you or a sign, some gesture to let me know that you were really there. That, that Something concrete it really would have helped. And God said, John, do you remember the day the little kid wandered into your store crying because he was lost? 
and you closed your shop and gave him some candy and calmed him down and you walked him down the street through stores and you found his mother and John said yeah, I remember that he said you remember the day the old lady walked in and thought you were a tea room and asked for a cup of tea and you got it. you were having tea for lunch so you made her a cup and you talked to her and you noticed the note on her coat where it said she sometimes became disoriented and there was a phone number and you called it and got her daughter and her daughter came and got her remember that day and John said yeah, yeah I remember that he said do you remember the day the old man came in with the holes in his shoes and his feet were freezing he was begging for money and you didn't have any money to give him but you repaired his shoes for free you remember that and, and John said yeah I remember that and God said do you remember the look on the little boy's face when he saw his mother and John said oh yeah the biggest smile I ever saw in my life he said, do you remember what the daughter said to you when she walked out the door with her mother on her arm? He said, yes. Yeah. She said, thank you and bless you. He said, do you remember what the old man said when he walked out and you said you were sorry you couldn't give him any money? And John said, yeah. He turned to me and he said, you've done me a great service. You'll get your reward in heaven. And God said, John, the boy's smile was my smile. The daughter's thanks and blessing was my blessing. The old man's promise was my promise. You have done a great service. Come in and get your reward. I was talking to you all the time. You just weren't listening. <coughs> now those of you who know me well know that I've made a habit of listening. After hearing that story, I listen, I look all the time for that word. And it comes every day in some way. It has come spectacularly on a couple of occasions. There was the party that my boss wanted me at. He took me back on the job. And he served sparkling burgundy. And everybody had a glass of sparkling burgundy. And they were toasting. And I wasn't going to drink wine. But I didn't want a glass of red wine in front of me. Because I thought it would be blinking on and off like a red neon sign. And be embarrassing not to drink. I didn't get any wine. The bottle went by me so fast I couldn't even smell it. I found the waiter later and I said, did my boss tell you to do that? And he said, hell no, Jim, I saw you at a meeting Tuesday night. <laughs> I told my sponsor, what a coincidence, I got an AA waiter and came on right down my throat. He said, what do you mean coincidence? You asked for help, you got help. That's the way it works. Go home and thank him tonight. And I did. And I've been looking for those words ever since. They came to me once halfway around the world. I was in Hong Kong making a travel log, shooting film. I had a 21-year-old Chinese guide with me, a young man who noticed that I didn't drink beer at lunch and asked me about my drinking and I told him the truth. And he said, oh, how lucky you are. You're from a city where they have AA. How grateful you must be. And he told me his father's story. His father was a traveling salesman and died an alcoholic. And he knew that there was something called AA that might have helped, but they didn't have it. And Hong Kong at that time. Believe it or not, during that trip, they had a drawing at the Ambassador Hotel where I was staying. They drew a lucky room number every day. And I came back a couple of days later. I came back to the room and got my key. And the clerk said, oh, you're the lucky winner for today. We drew your number. Here's your prize. And it was a fifth of Scotch whiskey. <laughs> And that boy's voice went through my head loud and clear. How lucky you are. How grateful you must be. Where did he find those words? 
a 21-year-old Chinese kid who'd never been to an AA meeting in his life. How did those words get into his mouth? I heard a woman recently at a meeting say that she got a message like that once so dramatically she just looked up and said, oh God, I think you're just showing off today. And, you know, I laughed out loud because that's the way I felt that day. Oh God, you're just showing off. I look for it in the newspaper, I look for it on television, radio. I get it from you folks. I get it in comments at meetings. Rick, who introduced me tonight, sent me an email a couple of months ago. It was a picture taken at the first international convention in Cleveland in 1950. Dr. Bob and Bill and about 12 guys standing behind him against the wall. And I looked very closely and the fourth one from the left was Howard Benhoff with a butch haircut and a big smile on his face. You know, they said, isn't it wonderful to be sober? And I could hear him saying it. I didn't have a picture of Howard until I got that one in the mail. That was my boost for the day. I got it when I looked up in the hospital room and Mike Delsing was there visiting me. I've had it when Damon has driven me to the hospital and stayed like family to take the messages from the doctor. I've had it from all of you in one way or another. I've gotten that message. I decided that I was going to look for it today so that I could give you an example of what I'm talking about. I, was, I got up this morning determined that I was going to listen carefully and watch and see if I could catch it today. At 8 o'clock this morning I was reading the newspaper and I read the horoscope every day. I don't believe in horoscopes but I read them because Sometimes they make me laugh when they talk about a relationship with my boss. I haven't had a boss for 19 years. Sometimes they make me cry when they talk about my relationships and my love of life. I want to go into that. But anyway, every once in a while it says something that strikes home with me. That has to do with drinking or not drinking or something having to do with AA. My horoscope today you can prove this yourself. Just get today's AJC and look it up. I was born on June 30th. I'm a Cancer. And it says, you must have faith in things that are unseen or invisible or that defy rational description. That's my horoscope today. That was my word for today. Now Stephen Hawking made a big speech this week. He didn't say there was no God, but he said God wasn't necessary to form the universe. It could have formed accidentally. Didn't need God. Well, the agnostics, atheists have all jumped on that, of course, and uh, to say that's evidence, scientific evidence, that there is no God. I, I don't think that's what Stephen Hawking meant. I think they're misinterpreting it. But in any case, Stephen Hawking may be the smartest man in the world, but I don't think he ever had a DUI and I'll bet you he never threw up in his wife's hat. So what the hell do I care what he thinks? <laughs> I know there are, there are people out there who think I'm just a dotty old man that confuses coincidences with miracles, thinks that wishful thinking is meditation, thinks that help self-hypnosis is a spiritual program. I don't know whether they're right or wrong, and I don't care. I don't know whether I'm right or wrong, or I don't care. It doesn't make any difference. 
Those thoughts and those actions give me comfort and they keep me sober. And what's wrong with that? I'm going to go right on doing it that way because it works. They say they don't believe in God because he hasn't shown them anything. I can smile and say to them, I do believe in God because he's shown me a lot. Now I have to quickly talk about the good old days. I don't leave that much time. And not by accident. I don't have much to say about the good old days, frankly. When I came into AA, AA looked a lot like me. Old, male, and white. It was considered an old man's disease. Well, not even a disease. It was an old man's failing or an old man's moral weakness. I was not the youngest guy in AA. I was 34. But I was often the youngest guy at the meetings I went to. They were predominantly older men at meetings in 1960. There were very few women. There were women in AA. They met in the afternoon women's meetings and served tea instead of coffee and talked about things they didn't want to talk about in front of the men. Uh, I heard bleeding deacons, as we used to call them, guys that would get upset in the slightest things. And I've heard them say, I'm not going to meetings anymore. There's nothing there but kids and women. Well, I like the kids and the women at meetings. I am so glad to see the young people come into this group, to know that they're welcome here, to know that they feel welcome here. None of them are ever going to have to stand in that empty parking lot, broken, drunk, and not have any place to go. They can always come here. The door is always open. They're always welcome. And that's the way it should be. And I learn from the young people, from their comments, from their behavior, from their appearance. I see them blossom in this program. And it, does my heart good. It touches me to see that. I'm glad to see the women here. The women have taken such a, a great part. They, they volunteer. They do things. Barbara and her grapevine, Amanda and her treasure, the two Kellys who volunteer for everything, Emily and uh, all of them. I, I can stand here and look out over a, a room full of pretty faces and I'll tell you, they've really spiced up the welcoming hug tradition in AA a lot. <laughs> I would, I would much rather get a welcome hug from Amanda or Emily or Liz or any Kelly than I would Rick or Greg or Bubba. Now, I shouldn't say that because the husbands are all here and they'll think I'm a dirty old man. But to those husbands who are here, and to the women who are Al-Anon or come to the meetings to support their spouse. I want to thank you too because you have touched my life as much. Your understanding, your help to your loved one helps the group because it makes them a better member. And the group helps me. So you have touched my life in that way too. And I'm very grateful for Tom and Matt and Chris and all of, the, all of you who have come to these meetings and have helped me with my program. <coughs> I think the program has probably improved you too. I remember one night I said that Chris reminded me of my wife and everybody laughed. They thought my wife looked like Chris. <coughs> I, that's not what I meant at all. He said something that night that was very much like a comment that my wife would make. 
and she was a great supporter of me and came to meetings and she grew and, and she said she got a lot out of AA and she didn't have to stand up and say I'm an alcoholic she just wore a t-shirt that said I was stupid <laughs> <coughs> but I thank you guys and women who support your loved one in this program now the last one AA was never segregated uh, I can prove that I spoke in Columbia, South Carolina around 1970 at an intergroup dinner <coughs> it was in a downtown hotel a beautiful dining room and it was all white and when the dinner was over and they were clearing the tables and setting the room up for the meeting to follow they pulled a curtain down one wall and there was a gallery of theater seats and already black members of AA were filing in and taking their seats in the gallery and I said something to the chairman about that and he said oh we go through this charade every year he said being AA we invite we send out invitations to all groups and all AAs in Colombia they are all invited everyone and we do it knowing full well that the hotel will not serve blacks in this room with whites the blacks also know that they will not be served and so they all respectfully decline the invitation to dinner but add that they can make it for the meeting and would like to do so and so we arrange with the hotel to accommodate them with the theater seatings and I'm sure they've all had dinner elsewhere together and come over here for the meeting afterward and I thought that's nice and then I thought it's more than nice it's the serenity prayer in action here are two groups of people who were at odds about a lot of things in those days but two groups of people one black and one white both had the serenity to accept something that at that time they could not change they had the courage to change what they could and get them in the room for the meeting and the talks and the meat of the meeting and the wisdom to know the difference it was the serenity prayer at work and I was glad of that so I'm glad the women are here I'm glad the kids are here <coughs> I'm glad that we don't have to go through any of that segregation crap Greg and I grew up in the same city and probably never would have met or would have met only casually if at all and here we can become close and special friends and have and that's the way I like it AA is better now than it ever was I'm better than I ever was because I get better every day and AA gets better every day and 1960 is not my good old days today is my good old days right now is my good old days and yours too so my closing advice is remember the last words you hear at every meeting it works if you work it but don't just work it one day at a time live it one day at a time and don't just live it one day at a time enjoy it one day at a time and don't just enjoy it one day at a time treasure it one day at a time because today sober is the most valuable thing you will ever have and after 50 years I can make you one more promise it still gets better every day and thank you for making this such a special today for me.